0: Welcome to the Novel Discourse podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. I'm Sam, as always, here with Andy. And Andy, I had quite a bit of coincidence happen to Do me yesterday. I think you'd Be interested in. I went out and played golf with Weber um, because it's just it's it's like perfect time of year. It's the only two or three week time in Texas where it's not freezing cold and it's not boiling hot outside. It's calm, 68 degrees, sunny with a little bit of wind. It was it was perfect, right? We get paired up with two people, and we're on the first tee, and we turn around, and who is on the practice screen, but your
1: boys-will-be-boys Be Boys co-host, Benny oh, Walker. Oh, shit. Well, so you must have been playing at a pretty low-rent establishment. Yeah. So that One, Ben could afford it, and oh, two, yeah. they let him they, in. They let yeah. everybody in, as there the old go. heads would say. Oh, that, is, that is like a go-to old head. Oh, they'll let everyone hear these he, days. He said across a Chili's, like... <laughs> yeah.
0: we, we are becoming just like... Dude, Old, crusty white men. Every like, day, playing one goal. day at a time. Oh, 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 one oh, day at oh, a everybody time. Everybody in here know. Yeah. He's playing, with, he's playing with Matt, your other uh, former lacrosse legend. Designer of the Boys Will Be Boys logo. The, the man himself. So a lot of connections there. They were they were trying to hit into us all day long. Um, went out went out to you with him afterwards. Debated whether or not we should hate Brooks Capgert, Bryson DeChambeau more. Because it is Masters Week. I saw
1: a, a nice Bryson DeChambeau tweet this morning that he had like said that the Augusto was like a par 67 course for him, and then he got yeah. blasted by some 63-year-old dude who was on his last Masters this year. Larry Mize, yeah. So, yeah. He, and the reason he said that is because
0: this was back when Bryson was at the height of his powers and was like legitimately winning like four times a year and had won majors and all that stuff, and he's hitting the ball like 370. So his comment, which I understand, like every Bryson DeChambeau comment. He can
1: he, just reach greens way easier than... Right, the par 5s,
0: legitimately, he can hit like a mid-iron into, so they play like a par 4 to him. So his comment, uh, while incredibly okay, douchey... Okay, less
1: douchey was, than I thought, yeah.
0: Incredibly douchey, not calculated at all, but essentially his point was, this plays like a par 67 from a distance perspective, is really what he meant. And okay, I got gotcha. you. But again, he just doesn't think about what he's saying. And so, yeah, and if he wasn't, he,
1: he already down. has, like, kind of, he carries the baggage of, like, his own shtick. So, like, right. people interpret all his comments through the lens of, like, everything else he said. Like and he said, and he said that two years
0: ago. So <laughs> it's not like he said that this week and then shot 20 over, because he was playing Hurt this week. And that's um, what I think people don't, don't understand. not understand. So I, you give him, like, a small pass for that. But
1: anyways... I will say one one little side thing real quick is that I saw a stat yesterday that the pro shop at Augusta during the Masters makes $850,000 an hour during the tournament.
0: Yeah, I, I would totally believe that. I mean, they've got... The,
1: yeah. I was just going to say the average per customer spend is $1,000. <laughs> like, that is... One, from an efficiency standpoint, the fact that they're getting every person's buying a thousand dollars of stuff and they're getting through 85 customers an hour is really impressive. Like they're doing 45 second customer interactions, which is really, really impressive. And two yeah. that they've set up this system where like they are, they have it down to a science. Like you don't have to lug it around. They'll ship it to your house. Like it, they, they figure that out and they, they trick everyone. They, cause what, what goes out on social media, not the $200 master's polos. It's the dollar 50 sausage biscuits that get all the, oh, yeah. get all the press. And then you get to oh, yeah. the pro shop no dollar fifty shit in there. <laughs> yeah,
0: no that they, they've they've really turned it into a um, not monopoly. What's the word I'm looking for? Maybe it is monopoly, but like, what would you consider the the system around like diamonds? Effectively, yes. Well,
1: they're just the only guys that you can only get it there, and like. Yeah, I mean it's a it's like if an NFT was a physical object. Maybe that's what's next. It's like physical NFTs, you know, like stuff like art, Th- things but that in are real worth, life,
0: things that are valuable that are also like <laughs> hold in your hand.
1: Things that are things that concept. are worth money because they're good and like you can actually like experience them in real life. Dude, we should get on that. That's next. I,
0: I mean, consider what they have going on for them as far as the Masters is. If you're a patron at the Masters, you're probably at minimum middle class, if not wealthier. Like just because of yeah. the nature of the people that are getting tickets, like. They're or, getting or work through for a fortune 100
1: company or yeah exactly
0: right or you're scalping tickets for like 3 grand or your family bought them years ago and your family's worth millions like those are the people that are coming into the masters for the for the most part so they're willing and able to spend money there's only one tent to get memorabilia and it's when you enter the so everybody has to go through it it's right there when you yeah. enter the property
1: it's like cowboys training camp <laughs> like yep. you got to walk to the merch store they know what they're doing
0: yeah it's it's exiting through the gift shop per se They've got a system. They're extremely efficient, and it's you can't buy official Masters gear on like Amazon or like Masters.com. It's only at the Masters, so it is one of those things where if you're there in person, you might be like, "Hey, this is my only chance to get a Masters hat. This is my only chance to get a Masters polo or pullover." So like, I'm gonna spend three hundred bucks on a pullover, knowing that yeah. I'm gonna have it for the rest of my life or whatever. So for sure, that's what they do. Anywho, let's uh, let's talk a little bit less about corporate America and talk a little bit about life and love and everything that uh, Clara Under the Sun talks about. Before we get into that, if you're new to our podcast, please like and subscribe. Give us a rating on Apple, on Spotify. We greatly appreciate that. But more importantly, tell two friends because we want to get the word out. Also, if you are new to this podcast, we do not do spoiler free reviews. This is going to be a spoiler written discussion of Clara and the Sun novel by Kazuo Ishigura. I believe that is his name. Mm -hmm yeah, we're, we're going to get into the, to the nitty gritty. So you have been warned. This was an interesting experience for myself because this is the first novel that I've read in quite a while that was not recommended to me. We were basically hunting for a a book that sounded interesting to us that we wanted to cover on this podcast because it had done well. And we had seen authors saying good things about it. Right. But it wasn't directly recommended to either of us. And it is uh, one of the top selling novels of last year, 2021. And, Kazuo Ishiguro, the writer, is a uh, Nobel laureate. He won it in 2017 for just his overall achievements.
1: Dude, yeah, I feel like an uncultured swine for not knowing who this guy is. After one, after reading this book because it is incredible. Two, <laughs> after like reading into him, he won the Nobel Prize. He won the Booker Prize. He's up for an OBE this year, so like this dude's gonna be Sir Kazuo Ishiguro uh, yeah. before too long. And so he's just like, you know, he's got the a resume that. Is just you know it's a lifetime of of achievement, but learning a little bit about him as a writer as I went through this book was really interesting because he does he seems to be uh, kind of lauded as this kind of master of several concepts including the unreliable narrator and first person fiction and things like that and that was all on display in this novel which I really enjoyed.
0: Also going through his his past works I haven't read this is the first Kazuo Ishiguro that I've read and it, going through the list of his novels and their synopsis synopses synopsis summaries i should say um he he comes up with some incredibly fascinating subject matters and yeah povs and things like that um i don't have a list in front of me but if you if you're not aware of this author you should definitely at minimum pull up his his wikipedia and just read some of the, the some of the things he's he's written he's written dystopian he's written like historical fiction people from all walks of life and just like it's these topics that he writes are very heavy. They get into the human condition. It's it's pretty cool. I I I envy his ability to come up with interesting topics from a wide range of the human experience per se.
1: Yeah, this is definitely a book that I could see being someone's like life work. You know what I mean? Like there yeah. are, there are authors that this would be their. This it took twenty years to do this novel, and this is like one of many for him. So I'm vastly impressed with his, the mind that created this.
0: Yeah, he's only and he's only written eight novels, which. Yeah. again i think is is fascinating i'm always interested in these people who are great writers and are are willing and able to take their time and not even in like the george r, r. martin sense where he's writing a 800 page novel so it like by the nature of it takes that long i mean this claire and the sun is i don't have it in front of me i wish i had the page count but it's probably what 300 pages ish give or take uh,
1: i've got it let me give you a uh an accurate page count. It is, yeah, right at 300, like 302, 303, exactly.
0: I I am a fan of novelists who can restrain their word count and can restrain their page count and tell a condensed story with that has a lot to say and don't turn it into word vomit that's like 550 pages because he could have easily gotten the publisher to buy into his 700-page epic that...
1: Oh, yeah. And that's one thing I read about him over and over again was that he is a master of knowing how much to reveal to you, how much to drip feed you as far as information goes. It's a, it's a master class in both, uh, like I mentioned earlier, kind of the unreliable narrator, which for, kind of from a different perspective, it's more unreliable narrator based on the ignorance of the narrator. Like the mm-hmm. narrator is obscenely honest, like to, the, to their core, um, but is just naive. Uh, and so we are along for the ride and as obviously since we're strangers to this world uh, being kind of dropped into it we're we're right there with her
0: do you want to get into the to the summary I've got a few things to say about the beginning chapter or the first few pages actually let let me me start by this before we get into the before we get into the summary you might disagree with me hard on this I'm gonna use a hyperbole that I probably don't agree with I'm gonna be bombastic here I thought the first five to ten pages was one of the worst openings to a novel I've ever read.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I would agree with that. There are really bad novels. And I
0: guess I'll preface that from a like an, a novel that is well received and well respected. Like I'm not talking about somebody hands you their beta work or some guy you've met on Twitter and you start reading it and you're like, Oh my gosh. But just from a novel that was like bestseller, you you're expecting something from it. I understand that the POV of this story is it's a AI it's a robot girl that is learning the world around her and so by the nature of that this narrator is going to not understand everything around the world or th- that the world is experiencing while, while that is the case in science fiction particularly you have to ground your work you have to be incredibly grounded in what you're telling the audience as to not get them confused right if you are if you start talking about things that are hard that that are not tangible and you're not defining what these things are
1: See, you can I, I would immediately disagree with you lose there. I I think I have to disagree with you there I think some people have to do that but if you look at like the true masters of the craft I mean Frank Herbert Dune notorious for never explaining anything like just throwing out terms and never defining them and it is considered the greatest if not the most foundational work of science fiction ever I- Isaac Asimov kind of the grandfather of all modern science fiction same thing so it's definitely harder to do and it's definitely bold i think this could definitely not be your first novel like if you tried this approach this is definitely someone who has already won a nobel prize right like right. this is this is your the approach you take when you are entirely confident in your ability Someone will read this entire book. I don't need to capture them in the first ten pages.
0: That's kind of what I'm saying, is I think that this novel relies on the author reputation, which I've seen a lot of books do that, which I understand. And and filmmakers do that as well. Like, hey, I know that people are going to understand where I'm coming from, and this isn't going to draw them off sides because they're going to watch this whole thing, right? Tarantino doesn't Um, need to
1: start with an action scene. Like, people aren't going to walk out of the theater, so...
0: Exactly. What I and, and I understand what you're saying. Where I'm coming from is, if in the first few pages you're relying on the author reputation and the back cover description to ground the reader, that's not good. And he needed that. He needed you to read the back cover description because I got I got eight pages in and I said, Am I am I reading a book about a plant right now? Because there's no way for you to determine that. Like there's this being talking about the room they're in and they're obsessed with the sun and getting put by the window. And you're like, okay, I'm reading a book about a flower right now. Like I, you know, and then, and then I flip to the back cover and I'm like, okay, this is a, a robot that needs the sun. Okay. And then I,
1: I think that's almost intentional though. Like the one, I do think that the naivety and the almost childlike, you know, ignorance to the, the realities of the world is so crucial to the character. And two, I think that that exact comparison of a plant is entirely intentional because we are... This has been done to death in sci-fi, but I think it's done really well here. The question of, like, where is the line between the artificial and and the living, the organic and the synthetic? Being introduced to something and questioning whether or not it's a plant, which is kind of like the the poster child, if you will, for natural, organic, from the earth. And being revealed to be, no, this is actually an entirely synthetic life form. And already beginning that that kind of dance around, like okay, like at what at what stage of development or at what level of cognizance is something a, a li- has a soul? Is it a life? Like that's a, I think a fundamental question to this this story. And different works have taken different approaches to that. You know, Ex Machina is kind of a huge I think touchstone of this this kind of genre that a lot of people saw, and it was really well received as well. And they chose to introduce it from the human perspective instead so like before we ever met the android or the robot we were it was described to us and like we were let we were told what it was going to be like and then that colored our our introduction to it um, this is a very I mean, again like this is an incredibly bold and risky decision right to Try to put a human who will have almost no ability to understand the perspective of a synthetic life form that comes into existence all of a sudden with full consciousness and memory, uh, and try to just slowly glean the uh, you know the world around them. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely different. Um, but I again, I think that 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 plant comparison is entirely uh intentional. purposeful, and I think it and yeah. I think it play I think it definitely pl- plays a role. I think it's a, an important role too. So it's yeah. it's definitely not for everyone and I can definitely see why it would like if you're in our, if you're in our shoes where we don't know who this guy is. I mean, I didn't anyway. Um, and I've never read his work before. It was a little bit like what's going on, but in the larger context of his work and in the larger context of this book, I do think it works.
0: Yeah, and and I I will concede that. I just I'm a huge proponent of um I need to know what's going on. This is a general statement, and I guess I am applying a generality onto one specific thing and maybe not giving it the context it deserves. But when you fail to ground your reader and get them to understand what's happening, who's talking, who's standing where, um, what's going on, what is the scene around them? That's generally the author's job, and yeah, and I wouldn't, you, I would not
1: know. suggest any uh, upstart writer to attempt this. Like this yeah. is not, uh, this is not for, for you know. It's this is the uh, off the glass, behind the back alley oop dunk of sure. <laughs> of writing, and if you mess up in any piece of the equation, it is a disaster. So yeah, I certainly agree with you there. Um, I would love just on before we move off at this point, we should definitely do. As kind of a companion piece to this episode, we should do Dune, because I don't think you've ever read the novel of Dune, have you? I have not. We should do that, because I think that would be an interesting comparison, Um, such a lauded work that is held in such high esteem that is in some way similar in that regard, and see how you uh, intake that in comparison to this. I would be interested to hear your thoughts.
0: Yeah, for sure. You want to get into the to the summary because there's you know there's not too much that goes on in this novel. It's pretty from an event perspective. It's
1: it's no, it's very thematic. It's it's pretty quick. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one thing I do love about the beginning of this book is that he uses some very interesting linguistic techniques to tell you about characters without being like this person is from X. So uh, the book is in America. The characters uh, that we see initially are American and. Then we're introduced to a mother and son who are British immigrants, and we are only kind of alerted to that at first by uh, different words they use and the spellings of the words that they're saying. So they they spell color with a u, they spell favor with a u. Um, I think I th- I was struck by that. Maybe I am being impressed by like the most par- like the most low level parlor magic trick of any author ever, but I was struck by that as like, oh, that's an interesting way to like communicate to your reader in a very subtle way like hey this person is from the UK without being like he was born in Chestershire and he loved tea you know what I mean so um, which they never did that in this
0: novel there was zero explaining of that that nature maybe through dialogue somebody would say oh yeah they lost their you know they lost their their daughter which we'll get into that later but it was that that is definitely a feather in the cap of this novel is they did not they, they used virtually zero explanation
1: of of what's happening exactly continue. so this is set in a dystopian future uh and it tackles immediately kind of this uh an issue that is looming in our real society which is for those who have uh probably seen news stories about uh things like CRISPR and uh, fetal genetic editing um we are quickly approaching a reality where um, you'll be able to, at least if you have the resources, go in t- to a doctor's office you know during pregnancy and choose things like height and increase intelligence and eye color and hair color and check, you know, uh, prevent certain genetic diseases and things like that. And in many ways that's very exciting. This examines kind of both the good and the bad. This is a dystopian future where uh, children are genetically enhanced. Uh, the term they use is lifted. And so they are, uh, like, I think you would see in real life. Like, uh, it's easy for us all to say, oh, I would never, you know, let them put a chip in my brain or I would never, you know, let them do that to my kid. But, uh, in this society Academic enhancement has made it such that the competition that we already experience for you know higher education and achievement within uh, academics uh, is obviously lopsided towards kids who have had this procedure. And clearly coming along with that is this kind of socioeconomic gap where, uh, you know, not in our society we live in now, uh, rich kids have access to private tutors and better schools and, you know, secure homes where they can do their homework and they have a mom and dad who are home all the time and make sure they're doing their stuff in this world not only that they are legitimately and in the most literal sense actually better and superior on a genetic level to people who do not have the resources to do this for their children Um, and
0: we they don't get into what lifted means they just say they're lifted and that that is a huge yeah and we we don't even know if that is from a brain processing we don't know if they are more physically gifted or more beautiful like it does not get into that at all yeah, so it's it, it's just a guess at this point
1: the the only reason that i i tend to think it's kind of uh errs on the side of that is that it is it's kind of uh the the context within it is that like so all education is done at home on screens and there's like very little socialization so like c- clearly the society has this like hyper focus on Uh, academic performance like in the most individual sense possible and so like the yes there's no there is no description of like what the procedure is we do know that there is uh problems with it that like some kids die or some kids become very ill and as a replacement for the traditional socialization of kids going to school and Doing all the stuff kids do, this line of uh, what are called AFs, artificial friends, has been created, and our protagonist is uh, an artificial friend. Her name is Clara, and she—they are sold in you know a shop like any uh, toy or high-end electronic is. We are introduced to Clara as she is kind of sitting in the window of one of these shops, and they are solar powered. The the androids are, which makes sense from a you know, power perspective. And so she immediately kind of begins to have this, uh, interesting relationship with the sun. Cause obviously it gives her nourishment. And I think that this is a really, uh, we'll get more into this at the end of the novel, I think, but this is the beginnings of showing like, um, there's many efforts made in this novel to blur the line between human experience and the experiences of this artificial life form. And so, mm-hmm. Uh, this is her relationship with something spiritual. So she ta- it. not only does the sun provide food for her effectively, but it is like her god. Uh, it is something yeah. like a higher power beyond her realm of understanding. Um, yeah, the she- words they use
0: is like it, the sun blessed them with nourishment and exactly. you know, graciously yeah. provided them nourishment. It, it, it is, there's, there's almost no tone used in this novel, but when the tone is used, because again, this is from an AI perspective, the tone that is used is... A, when she's noticing how people are acting towards each other, and she's like, based on their actions, I feel like she was mad, right? And then the second thing is when she talks about the sun. That's about the only time that she gets truly, I wouldn't even say in her feelings, but she uses uh, words with weight, if you will. So, continue. Yeah,
1: and and part of it, I think, also is that um, because of the role that artificial friends play in this society, they're not included in, like, the discussion of what is happening. They're treated like machines. So, uh, no one is going to explain to them like, Hey, here's what's going on in the household. Or like, here's the context of what you just saw. So they're left to kind of, uh, as if they were, you know, a butler that no one talks to, they're left to kind of their own devices to figure out what, what they're experiencing, what they're observing. So she lives in this shop and there is a 14 year old girl that comes in named Josie. Josie lives uh, with her mom, like way out in the countryside, so a totally alien location for for Clara. She's used to living in this shop, kind of in the city or in a town. She'd never been least.
0: outside, which you learn later. Yeah. But yeah,
1: uh, and and so she is purchased uh, by this by this girl's family to be her AF.
0: Can we can we get into that scene real quick of how that happens uh, and what convinces them? I thought this was an, a great foreshadowing. Was um, for for some reason we that is not made privy to us. When Josie comes back for Clara, you know, there's there's two kind of things that percolate in your mind as the reader that are brought to your attention. One is that the manager of the store, the simply called manager, tells Clara to not get her hopes up over Josie, who has stopped by once or twice, because she basically makes the comment that, like, you know, kids will tell you, they'll promise to you they'll come back, but then they'll change their mind. That's just kind of the nature of children and humans. And that plays into something later, but then also... There's there's a moment when Josie does actually come back and does see Clara, and for whatever reason, the mother of Josie, um, which I believe they just call mother, I think it does do. give her name at some point, but mother tells Clara to walk through the store like Josie, like she saw Josie walking. So she has Clara imitate Josie's walk, which is kind of a long a, a, a walk that, as described, as basically leaning in one direction to because she's not as strong on one leg, so she does a walk around the store. And Clara describes that when she makes her way back to everybody doing this walk around the store, that Mother is looking at Clara, but is more looking through Clara. And that highlights, um, it's one of a few times early on that you're highlighted Clara's ability to pick up on very fine responsive or reaction right. traits from humans and being able to really see what humans are doing other than just like, oh, they smile. She's able to see the the details behind it. There's a scene where uh, she notices a child on the street that's smiling at her AI, but not smiling happily, smiling as if she's actually angry, right? These are things that yeah. some humans aren't even able to pick up on. And it's described in the novel that other AFs can't pick up on. Clara has great senses to what you know, how humans are feeling, if you will.
1: Yeah, she's super observant, and that is almost aided by her... She has almost no agenda of her own, right? Like, mm-hmm. she she is not... We're all distracted by our own thoughts and feelings and tasks and initiatives, and Clara's life is ultimately very simple. She lives in the shop, she knows very few people, she, Her she has her kind of investigation into the sun. Other than that, she is pretty much... In, can devote... The entirety of her being to the observation uh, and analysis of what she observes, and so mm-hmm. that does give her this kind of like next level ability to view, analyze, and imitate uh, behaviors and other things that she sees. And so she, she has is, a true one shack uh, mind, and absolutely, this is something.
0: You know, I was I was trying to figure out where I think this this manner of um, narration comes from. I listened to Ishiguro say that. This novel was originally supposed to be a children's novel and it was going to be told from a narration perspective of a robot that acted like a I think he used the word a toddler but you can kind of see that. The other thing that I thought of and to get into some kind of tricky waters here is Clara reminds me a little bit of somebody that would be on the spectrum. Yeah, definitely. Where she's hyper acutely aware of certain things and will get she has a very she has a little bit of a one-track mind towards one or two simple desires and then everything else kind of falls to the wayside Um, I I will say that uh, there's a lot of scenes in the beginning of this novel that you'll see Clara pick up on some incredibly astute things you're like wow that's incredible that this AI was able to find that and you'll see her knowledge of the world around her be a lot more involved than you think it would. The way she just descri- describes the cooting machine, she just she's able to describe the the stacks and the valves and the smoke coming mm-hmm. out of it and all this stuff, and she's able to describe like the way a taxi works. But then there's also parts where you know she will see a homeless man on the street sleeping, and then when the homeless man wakes up, she's confused as to how the sun brought her back to life. So there's there's these huge gaps in knowledge, right? And and I and I almost consider this a a points off from the writing a little bit and it's is there will be moments where you're like wow clara is crazy observant has these crazy inputs but then doesn't know these very simple things and we'll get into that in a second when we talk about things like the oblong like clara doesn't know what a smartphone is um she calls it an oblong right she doesn't she doesn't understand what somebody's sleeping at certain parts but then in other parts of the story she understands where josie's sleeping it kind of reminds me of um have you seen uh have you seen tropic thunder oh yeah okay so at the beginning of the film when they show all these actors and their roles and it shows ben stiller's film simple jack yeah. yeah yeah you know it's 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 super super over the top but there's this line that simple jack says where he's in to quote it he says uh <laughs> uh head movies making my eyes rain and it's almost like you you it, the writing is it was meant to be so poorly done in this you know fictional movie, where instead of saying the simple thing, like, I'm sad because of this memory, or I'm I'm crying because of something, they go way out of their way to say a much more complex thing. The head movie's making my eyes rain. Right. And that's kind of how I felt with Clara sometimes, was, there was, like, she'd be able to describe the most, like, minute details of things, but then she would miss the obvious stupid stuff that you think a robot designed to take care of a human would would understand. So...
1: Yeah, um, I, took, I took some of it as... Her understanding extended pretty much to things that she would inevitably experience so things like mortality were hard for her to grasp because Mm -hmm. that's not really part of an ai's life but yeah certainly that's that's a a, the the bounds of the naivety are hard to understand from a human perspective because it's bizarrely alien um and could be frustrating for a reader i'm sure um, and it, and
0: again, it didn't take to- too much away. I wasn't sitting there just constantly getting ripped out of the story, but it was something I was noticing throughout the throughout the book. Is like, wait, why why don't you know what a smartphone is? Or like, these seem like they'd be very obvious. Yeah, and I to couldn't understand. I
1: couldn't really tell if it was like she didn't know what a smartphone is, or if like this this, this far flung society did not refer to them as smartphones and like didn't have the same concept of a smartphone as we did, like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, if they called them oblongs too, like, that kind of situation, I couldn't really glean that from from the book. Ultimately, it didn't make a huge impact on the narrative for me, so it, it didn't preoccupy me too much, but... Um, I, yeah, I just think yeah.
0: he had to show ways that... He he had to pick and choose where he was going to show that Clara was unable to make certain astute judgments that maybe a, a, a sentient human would. Like, the scene with sure. the bull... Where she's, like, worried. She sees that the bull's angry but doesn't understand that the bull's not going to go after her and that there's a fence between them. So I do think that that was probably one of the struggles of writing this novel is how do you show this being that is incredibly intelligent? How do you show their gaps in knowledge? And so I'm sure that was a challenge. But continue.
1: Yes, especially as, uh, you know, you're trying to use the character as, one, it's your protagonist, so it, it has to, like, it's a difficult challenge to use that as the main vehicle for the narrative. And two, he is kind of known as this like person who uses the unreliable narrator really well. And so to use, he obviously wanted to use that thematically. And so finding the opportunities to, to leverage that are, yeah, a challenge. So yeah, so Clara gets purchased. She moves out to the country and she kind of discovers a couple of facts. One is that um, Josie uh, had an older sister uh, who went through the lifting process and I believe died? Sal. Yeah. yeah, and 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 passed away. And Josie herself is uh, is really sick. I couldn't tell if that was because she too had they had like attempted the lifting process with her, and she had it had failed, and she was ill, or if she was just sick. Um, I believe they
0: referenced that, that 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 is what happened. And so there's this level of guilt coming to the mother that she's basically o for two. She's made her both children go through the lifting process and. One died because of the sickness, and the other one is is approaching death because of the sickness. Gotcha,
1: gotcha, okay. Um, And the only neighbor for, like, miles around out in the country where they live is this uh, little boy named Rick uh, who's, like, the same age as uh, Josie and their childhood friends. And um, like many children who are, you know, in close proximity to each other, especially in an isolated setting like that are childhood friends, um, they kind of have this sort of, like, Blurring the lines between a platonic and like kind of puppy dog love type situation, growing up so close to one another, mm-hmm. um, and this is obviously Clara's like first introduction to the concept, like the complicated concept of love and like the different forms it takes. Um, and I and of I, loneliness, right? For sure. And I, I I found this interesting because I think that uh, often in our media we show those two kinds of love in very strict context, like platonic love and romantic love. And the blurring of those lines, especially from the perspective of someone who has no context with which to understand them is an interesting way to like walk through uh, that journey uh, with someone. Like that's a very interesting way to look at it. It definitely had me thinking about that concept more deeply than I think I would have otherwise. And Rick, he's a smart kid, but he's not been lifted. And so he's kind of like, I, I think, you're basically meant to think that he's kind of fucked. Like there's no – this is a society in which like the non-lifted are effectively discriminated against. I kind of got Gattaca right. vibes if anyone's seen that movie where like you can be the most baller motherfucker in the world. But if you don't have the – you didn't get gattaca then like you're going to be the janitor at NASA and you'll never get yeah. to ride on the spaceship. So Clara lives in Josie's room and she can now see the sun – uh, you know, kind of complete its daily cycle more clearly because she's not in this town. She can't just see it through the window. She can now see it like all the, go all the way to the horizon. And uh, out on the horizon is a, an old barn. And so she comes to believe that that's where the sun goes. Like when it, when it's done do, doing its nourishment and whatnot, it goes and sleeps in this barn, which is a very interesting, and again, going back to kind of the idea of the sun as uh, an, a primitive idea or primitive concept of God. I immediately went to the idea of like when like the Greeks had Zeus and uh, wherever your wherever the limit of your observation goes to, that's where you put your deity. Right. So like when the Greeks had Zeus and they couldn't get to the top of a mountain, that's where Zeus was. And then right. when they got to the top of the mountain, then God, their God was up in you know the heavens. Right. So like a uh, very interesting way to kind of show the proto development of a, a concept of spirituality, Um, within a being uh, I I found that really really interesting obviously as as with these kind of twin concepts of like her reinvigorated investigation into what the sun's doing and then also her observation and growing closer to Josie and being exposed to kind of the romance between Josie and Rick she comes to really desire for uh, the sun to visit its special blessing of nourishment on Josie and make her uh, okay again because she's been really really ill because uh, she saw, again, as you mentioned, Sam, she did see, uh, from her perspective, she saw the sun, uh, you know, heal or nourish this beggar that was asleep, yeah. and, and it made him okay. And so she she believes the sun can do this. And so she uh, makes what is a, amounts to, like, a, a spiritual covenant with the sun that she will destroy the cootings machine, and in return for that, please uh, make Josie okay.
0: Which is so childlike. It's so, like, it's it is. very, like, it's... sweet and innocent of just, like, this idea that, You have the you're one corner of the world, and you feel like if I can just do this one thing, you'll make my my whoever feel all better. It reminds me
1: so much of like my my own childhood uh, in in church before gaining a more complex understanding of the concept of God and like how that works uh, or how not how it works that's way too (laughs) objective, but how I you know that that idea grows. Um, But when you're a kid, you are like. You know, I promise I'll eat my vegetables and I'll do my homework if you'll just like yeah. make my dog not be sick. Those kind of things that right. like God is effectively like a, a more altruistic Santa Claus. Like a, <laughs> he does yeah. he does nice things in return for, for good works kind of thing. He, he operates um, like
0: the mafia in this sense. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, and while this is going on, uh, Josie's mother is kind of continuing this weird thing where she's asking Clara to imitate Josie all the time. And Very weird. Again, because she has this these exceptional powers of observation, she can do that like almost perfectly. Uh, and as part of this, she's asking uh, Clara to sit for this portrait, like a painting, effectively. And we come to learn that that is not, in fact, like a portrait. It is a highly detailed artificial friend body of Josie. And in the event that Josie dies. Clara's intel AI will be transferred into this body and the mother will have the opportunity to kind of have like a fresh start right like a non-ill version of her child that is a one-to-one copy um it's super weird which is terrifying dude like oh that's all kinds of like there's all kinds of psychosis there that you're just like oh my god dude but I mean the, again the adults, like the adults in this
0: novel in general are kind of wheels off and and I think I don't know how much of that is intentional. Like, because I feel like as a as a kid, again, this is told from the perspective of an AI who's child. Like, you always feel like parents have it pretty much put together. You feel like sure. parents are this like upper echelon of knowledge and understanding. And you kind of even even if they're not your own, or even if you see a parent not acting in a way that your parents agree with, you kind of just are like, I should respect this, you know, older yeah. being. They know the answers. But it's, yeah, but it's funny because. In this novel, all of the adults are weird in their own way. They're like arguing with each other. They're making these obviously horrible decisions about their own kids. Helen, who is Rick's mom, is is really weird and like is always is always sneak dissing people. And it's just they're all over the map.
1: I I also am I. When I first read this part, I also was like, that concept is immediately kind of like spiritually and emotionally offensive, right? Like the idea of like replacing your child with what amounts to a robot version of them. But then I sat with it for a while and I thought like I could totally see that if if we had that technology available. Like if that was totally doable and someone's child tragically died, I could 100% seeing at least some weird people, if not some less weird people doing that. Like people do very strange things to keep the mem even just the memory of, you know, dead loved ones alive and especially children who go too soon. That has a traumatic, mm-hmm. you know, psychological impact on people. And we've seen things like, you know, Barbara Streisand paid two million dollars to clone her dog when it died. And if you could just throw money at a situation and, you know, have what amounts to a perfect clone of your child who would act like your kid, um... I could definitely see people doing that. So like it's it's definitely a stretch because uh, right now it seems so extreme. But if that was like a regular if – the, if the presence of artificial people that were – could be indistinguishable from normal humans was a pretty regular part of our life, I could totally see it happening. I mean we're already starting to see this rollout of like the metaverse. The idea of like living a second life in a digital space; those kind of things are being kind of advertised as being this next level. Um, I could totally see someone being like, you know, oh yeah, my girlfriend died, and so I got this android that, like, you know, will watch TV with me. That's I could totally see it happening. So it yeah, is bizarre, and, and, but I, and, I, and I, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. And I agree
0: with all those points. I, I I think specifically with the Clara and the Sun example, it's it's strange that Clara is described a lot by other people as probably a pretty weird ai because you have you know housekeeper melania is weirded out by her at all times and is like go stand over there and like people at the party like they're they have these social gatherings where people will talk freely in front of clara and she'll just kind of be a wallflower and standing off in the corner and she'll just be observing the whole time so you right. got to think that if you're a human watching that play out, Clara is probably acting like a robot butler just like standing there wide-eyed yep. not not having any emotion. You couple that with the fact that Josie is still alive and maybe has a chance to survive. It is weird you you pair those two up and you see the mother going on like a, effectively a a mother and daughter bonding trip with Clara and then being like, "Hey, uh don't tell anybody, but could you uh could you just act like her for a second?" Oh uh, yeah. That would really be cool. Hey, can you do
1: that well, walk and, you did before? It's just very I think, weird. I, I agree with you 100%. I also think there is a piece of it. that Maybe it's less contingency plan and more just peace of mind. Like, maybe this isn't about, like, I'm planning for when she dies, and it's more like, if this happens to me again. I already lost a kid, so I have experienced that horrific tragedy. If this happens to me again, by going through these motions and making these plans, obviously I don't want that to happen, but if it does the knowledge that i have this amalgamation this version of her that could exist brings me some level of peace that i won't lose her entirely cuz sal is gone right like sal is nowhere to be found in this novel and so the idea of the mom being totally alone is probably deeply deeply terrifying to her on an existential level um, it, yeah, so i wonder sure. like what what portion of it is is actual like practical planning and more uh, and what piece of it is more about like it just makes me feel better to know that I have this in place so that if something did happen, I would not be here alone with only the memory of um, – which comes into play later. Like the the, th- the yeah. themes around like the value of memory, the value of happy memory, those kind of things.
0: And we kind of skipped over this, but speaking about the mother's relationship with these, these AIs – How creepy was this scene where Helen, which is Rick's mother, describing what she saw behind Josie's house? Where basically, it it reminds me of the scene the if you've ever seen the movie Signs, the Mel Gibson movie with M Night Shyamalan, where like there's that home footage of like you can barely see an alien coming through the cornfield, like that. That's what I was envisioning that Helen saw was like this really creepy scene where you've got this like AI robot that's like fighting to get away from a human. And the idea that an AI would have a sense of fear or like not want to do something and that the human was like, no, you're going to do this. And that this mother is like dragging this AI who, um, to be more clear, it's, it is the AF that was meant to replace Sal and things didn't go well. And again, I think what adds to the creepiness of that scene is that you're hearing from a voyeuristic perspective, Helen describing what she saw, which always kind of adds a creepy layer And then there's the fact that you've got Clara, the main character, who is an AI, who is living in the mother's house. And she's, you know, whether she realizes it or not, that she could be put in a similar situation very soon. You as the reader don't know whether that's going to happen. But then I think that one thing that just kind of adds a cherry on top to that whole scene is that it is relayed to you as the reader through Clara's non-emotional like input of it she's very much just like telling you the events of what she heard helen say with with zero tone whatsoever so you almost are getting the sense of the reader of that that uh, age old like th- the character in the horror movie doesn't know to get out sort of thing yeah for and sure it's like run like how do you not see how crazy this is whereas clara is just like oh that's weird Anyways, continue telling your story. Like, is not thinking about it as she should, but it's just that was that was crazy.
1: Yeah, no, totally agree. Uh, it is it is a, a very bizarre situation she's put into, and, and while that's happening, she's also trying to kind of rectify the Josie situation, and so she decides to kind of make this, uh, I'll call it like a pilgrimage. Like, she's going to go to the barn. And I don't know if everyone did this, if it was intentional by the, by the author, or if only I kind of viewed it this way, but I, I did view that as like, you know, making this kind of spiritual journey to the temple, right? To like make your plea to, before God oh, 100%. for this thing. I, I think it was meant um, to be that. Yeah, and so she goes. She goes all the way to this barn, and obviously, she finds out that the the sun does not live in a barn. Um, but she kind of falls to her knees and like prays, effectively. Like this is a a synthetic, non human entity making a spiritual plea to what it considers. The creator of the universe the life-giving force of higher power of its universe to make everything okay with josie and kind of the context with which she makes that plea is that like you can't let josie die her and rick have this like eternal everlasting love like that's part of her her statement and when she when they go to town next clara does find and destroy the Kuding's machine as part of her like deal that she made with the sun but Josie's condition seems to just like kind of get worse and worse and it seems like she's really close to death and kind of at that moment Clara sees some dark clouds part and the sun comes through the window and Mm -hmm. over the preceding next near term uh, Josie's health condition improves. And so Clara views, uh, you know, her deal works, you know, she made, she made a deal with the son, the son accepted the term, she destroyed the cooting machine and now Josie's going to be okay. What follows is Josie kind of growing up and like many teenagers who have like a little childhood crush on a neighbor or something like her and Rick drift apart. And for Clara, this creates this kind of crisis of, you know, Uh, the stakes with which she put this deal on with the son was like, hey, they're in this eternal romantic, you know, you can't star-crossed lovers, you can't let her die. And now, did she lie to the son? Did she misunderstand the context of their relationship and thereby, like, invoke, you know, the ultimate request when she didn't understand the situation? And fortunately, Rick, who seems like a pretty chill dude at this point, kind of sits her down and effectively explains to her that, like, Love is more complicated than, like, you're Romeo and Juliet ready to die for each other and enemies or, you know, total strangers. And they exist in this middle ground where they will always be connected in some very valuable way. But it's okay that they're not going to spend the rest of their lives together. And that despite them taking different paths, like, they left an indelible mark on each other. And that is the true nature of love is that when you love someone, like, and you spend, you know, time with them... Um, a mark is left on your soul effectively, and that is a value, regardless of what the end result is. Um, and so the novel kind of uh, closes with Josie going to college, and she says goodbye to Clara. And Clara is uh, scrapped. She's sent to a scrapyard with all the other AFs because once kids like leave, that's kind of their role is like they provide like socialization and help and tutoring and whatnot when they're growing up. And then once the kids go to college and become adults, the AFs are, are retired. And so she goes to the scrapyard. She's no longer, like, mobile. She can't move around. She's kind of stuck they on this pile. it's like, fa-
0: fading, the fading. Or, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and, like but she's, these, uh, yeah. she's pretty content with her little spot in the yard. She doesn't really hang out or talk with the other AFs. She's just kind of, like, chilling, looking at the sun whatnot. Um, and the manager of her old shop uh, comes by to visit. And Clara basically explains that, you know, kind of as a response to Rick's philosophy, she is uh, very content with the happy memories of her and Josie and the the son's great kindness to her and someone that she really cared about in Josie. And so it was a life well lived. And that's kind of the end of the book. So a ton of... Very, I I loved kind of the melding of like this very important, I consider very important, like scientific issue that we're dealing with about like what is our role of playing God, right? Like, how much should we mess with uh, the body, the mind, the genetics, whatever level they're manipulating on? How much should you, as a human, play a role in that? And then, so humans are messing with nature and. At the same time, something that humans created, which is kind of like an act of God in and of itself, giving birth to life artificially, is having its own spiritual experience on the other side of things. And the melding of these two kind of thematic elements, I think, was really well done, really interesting. And the ultimate culmination of it, you kind of arrive at a version of Clara that is much wiser, who has a deeper understanding of, of love, of what it is to exist in a relationship with others, and to have... The sees the value in uh, impactful life experiences and doing for others; those kind of things. So, I found it very. I found the whole book to be very satisfying to read. It does have a lot of elements of a child's novel in in that way. And now that you brought that up, I can definitely see the the structure of that in a lot of the ways it was done. But I really did like it a ton. I I really do plan on going to read some of this guy's other stuff because I I thought it was really well done. I think you've yeah. pointed out some things that could have been done differently, if not better. I don't know what terminology people want to use because I have seen people be like, this is a masterpiece. Like, this is one of the greatest novels I've ever read. And I haven't sat with it for long enough to, to uh, attribute anything like that uh, to it, but I did find it uh, incredibly thought-provoking uh, on a yeah. bunch of different levels, both from emotionally, spiritually, scientifically, and it is an incredibly audacious undertaking to write this kind of novel from this perspective and do it in a pretty tight concise way like we said this would have been very easy to make into a 700 page super dense science fiction novel and it comes across as much more digestible than that Um, once you attune yourself to kind of the lack of context and exposition you're going to get I think you fly through it pretty easily Um, the back half of the book is very very easy to read Um, yeah that was I I loved it man I'm interested to hear your thoughts for sure
0: and isn't it funny that the the end of the book kind of ends in a way that makes you think of? It almost reminded me of like when humans are of really old age, when you're sitting in an old folks' home or whatnot, and you're you're literally like your days are spent, you know. You're hopefully you're doing more than this, but you're going to be thinking a lot about your past and your life and reflecting and all that.
1: Sort yeah, of stuff. and the beginning of the book is much like a delivery ward, right? Like you're behind glass, looking out at the world, seeing trying to figure out what's going on, and then at mm-hmm. the end, you you have a lot more knowledge about what's going on in the outside world, but you kind of don't want to participate in it anymore, and you just kind of live with your happy memories and enjoy what you have left.
0: Yeah. D- did you feel that the novel from, I think it's broken up into parts instead of mm-hmm. chapters per se, but did, did you feel like chapter, I want to say like part five, kind of ends with uh, the cootings machine, Clara tries to break it, it doesn't work? Mm-hmm. Josie's still sick, and she's kind of like, "What's going to happen?" And then it just jumps forward, and it's like, "Well, Josie got better, and now she's going to college." And uh, and it just kind of felt like the phrase "one thing led to another," where <laughs> we didn't really see the climax, we didn't really see the beginning of the resolution. It just went from like the middle of the novel to like things are winding down. That's how it felt yeah, to me, I'll, anyways. I'll
1: give I'll give the the listeners some uh, some context here. It says they so the the very end is. You know, that's enough. Just take it easy. Do, do you want a drink or something? Water maybe? Uh, and then Mother says, okay, let's assume nothing. We'll have to take it one step at a time. So we see her like we, – we did see the sun's special nourishment come in. She seems to in that moment feel a little better, but we're like, okay, obviously she the sun didn't magically heal her. So like is she sure. out of the woods? Is she not – And then you go into Part 6, and the first sentence of Part 6 is, The sun's special nourishment proved as effective for Josie as it had for Beggar Man, and after the dark sky morning, she grew not only stronger, but from a child into an adult. And so that is like a titanic shift, especially for a a novel that has taken place in much more real, closer to real time than that. It was was a, a, I don't want to call it jarring, because I think that has a negative connotation. It's kind of startling that that's how it was done, but I think from a thematic standpoint, that was the important piece that he wanted to get to. The, the novel wasn't about, was less about like these individual events and more about the memories and experiences of this protagonist as they pertain to these events. And so for her, like when, when that AI is looking back on its life, this is how it would have relayed those things, right? Like, Oh, the touch and go nature of she was sick. And then this thing happened, this thing happened, and then she got better. And then like, you know, she got better every day for a long time and it, things got a lot, you know what I mean? Like that would be kind of this big impactful moment turning point, And then you would kind of ride off into the sunset as far as Josie goes. So for I sure. can understand it, but it is startling for sure. Especially after you've been so kind of like minute to minute with the, the progress around Josie.
0: I, I, I also would like to read the, the other works by Ishiguro. Like the, the way that he, he wrote this novel again, I've, I've pointed out some of the things that I, either just outright didn't agree with, or I didn't think were executed perfect. I didn't think he stuck the landing on some of the things, but I did appreciate the way in which he did them and the creativity of this narrator and how they basically went about structuring this, their their POV, I thought was fascinating. I thought that that played really well into the way that he wrote. Um, this novel is done, and we talked about this a little bit, but there's no tone. There's no, they don't use big words. There's hardly any L-Y- descriptions it's very much the next morning i woke up and i walked to the end of the path and then i went down to rick's house rick was not there it's also it's it's very childlike but it is also very ai sort of there's no emotion to anything that's done
1: i have to compliment him on his ability to i already mentioned at the beginning put himself in the shoes of the reader and like get a real grasp of what he is putting towards the reader from a like information perspective i think that that all felt very deliberate but also i think it would be very i mean at least for me incredibly difficult to write a book from this different of a perspective from my own like to to really kind of change your voice as an author to that of this protagonist would be very difficult i feel like mm-hmm. um you'd find yourself very tempted to like drop into your own voice especially in moments of high tension or in scenes that you've put a ton of thought into around, like, the, you know, the climactic action of this would be very difficult to not view from your own perspective since you've put so much thought into, like, crafting them. Um, And I thought he did a really good job, like, it must have taken so much, you know, kind of intellectual horsepower to put this narrative, not only to create this story and its themes, which are, like I said, I have a lot of respect for but to do that from this very alien, foreign perspective I think would be difficult for almost anyone to write uh, mm-hmm. in a way that's compelling, and I think he did that.
0: Yeah, and I think one way that Ishiguro was able to have his cake and eat it too is that he deliberately wrote at the very beginning of the novel that Clara was an AI that had acute understanding of human reactions to things and was very observant, and that allowed him to, when he's watching people... When, from Clara's perspective, you're watching people have a conversation, Clara can pick up on the slightest tick and reaction of other people and how they how they were feeling about things, and so it allowed Clara to say things like they were smiling, but the smile was the smile of somebody who was actually upset and trying to hide it, right? So it it kind yeah. of allowed him to dip into away from a an AI's first person point of view and into kind of an omnipresent third-party pov like i like you know he said angrily type thing without going that direct and
1: and he made the protagonist special uh which is can be very important for certain stories i also think it was wise to choose a quote-unquote power or special ability especially given a protagonist that is kind of hard to relate to probably for many readers um he chose an attribute that many people view themselves as having like in Mm -hmm. in tons of like polls and studies like everyone says they're good at reading people right like yeah. everyone thinks they're hyper observant um i have a great book written by a psychologist about the phenomenon of of cons and con men and one of the like structural weaknesses that many people have when encountering that is that everyone will tell you like oh i'm a good poker player you know i, I can tell when someone's lying i'm i'm good at that and the truth is obviously like many people are not and there's an average and it's not very high, and most of us right. implicitly trust people. And so, um, but uh, to get back on subject, the idea that, you know, her, what sets her apart from every other artificial friend is that she is incredibly observant, one, like you mentioned, kind of uh, allows for her to serve as a much better narrator than any other artificial friend would who wasn't as observant. It allows him to put more uh, observation and color into every scene of this novel. And on top of that, allows for. Her to have an attribute like I mentioned that that the reader can glom onto and be like, okay, that I can identify with because I too mm-hmm. consider myself uh, to be observant. So I thought it was uh, this was a very good choice. Um, the character is well crafted for being as like kind of shallow as it is. Like it's a, not mm-hmm. a it's not a character that I think anyone will ever be like. That's my favorite character in fiction. You know, like there, are, I can't tell you if the it is. Of I would be, I would
0: I would question the person's well being. Yeah, Why?
1: I I will, I will say I like met a about? dude my. I will say I met a dude my first day at Oracle who told me that he was – he compared himself to Patrick Bateman, and I (laughs) didn't know what he meant by that, but couldn't be anything good. Either he didn't understand that book slash movie or we need to check the trunk of his car uh, against the missing persons list. But I will also say that like you know many, many men that I have been friends with in their early 20s compare themselves to – not in a, not in like a, I am this person, but just like see themselves in like Nick Carraway, for instance, from yeah. The Great Gatsby. Um, I was definitely one of those people at 23 years old. I saw so much of myself in this like kind of wannabe, insecure, trying to find your way in the world character that Fitzgerald wrote so well. All the, all the weebs want to be what, light Yagami. Absolutely. You just, just want to be the smartest
0: person in the room. Absolutely.
1: Sure. And so there's a, uh, this is not that kind of character, but it, I do think it's important to, even in characters that are written in such a way that they're not supposed to be like a stand-in for the reader, to give them some attribute that will allow for them to be like, okay, I understand that. And I think in this case, it is that observational you know, prowess that she possesses.
0: And another thing that I think worked in Ishiguro's favor was that if you had written this, this is... I guess I'm going to throw it under the the bucket of a high-concept novel, like science fiction, especially because of Clara's point of view. If it wasn't from Clara's point of view, it would have been a lot easier to digest. But because it's from Clara's point of view, you're learning as she's going. It worked in his favor that he's using simplistic words, simplistic sentence structure, getting straight to the point with things, not using a lot of tone. If he was trying to use Clara's point of perspective and was using very flowery language to describe things you would have you would not only not understand what clara is seeing versus what she's not seeing but you would also you'd be like wait is that is he trying to use a literary element there to describe something that's obvious or is he trying to show that clara doesn't understand what that is right and so i think if he had tried to write this with more flowery language it would have probably been the most confusing novel of all time
1: yeah i agree it would have totally flopped (laughs) so good good on him (laughs) No, agreed. I, I I think he he pulled it off really well. Um, I am, I have to say this, I'm so glad we chose this. I had kind of the same sensation I had. It warped me back to high school where you've been assigned to read a book. And so you're like, Oh, I need to get to reading this. You know what I mean? It's not a book you've organically chosen. It also made me realize how much I wish I had been more mature in like high school and stuff when like I, cause I couldn't appreciate great literature like I can now. And so this was when I finally got around to reading it, this was such an enjoyable experience. And so mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, Agreed. I got to read more of this guy's stuff. Like, yeah. So
0: I think this uh, needs to be read sh- in, in schools. I feel like it's, it's, it's a very oh, this good, is, like, this is prime.
1: Work. Like, uh, this is prime like AP English tenth grade fodder right here, man. Right. Like, it is. yeah, you're writing a you're writing a nice double spaced essay on this motherfucker, dude, for sure.
0: You could because there, there's so many things you could take away from this novel. For a 300 page novel, it tell, it says so much about society, loneliness, love, how we view others. It's just it go we we yeah, could we could honestly have a separate is. yeah we we could have a separate hour long episode that's just about the themes of Claire and the Sun yeah. and how they
1: relate to us. Dude, and again, like, I go back to what I said at the beginning, like, the fact that this is, like, novel number eight for this dude, and he just churns this out, I'm just like, that's crazy. Like, if I ever wrote this, I would feel like a genius, and yet he's right. just like, all right, like, see you in, you know, 2025 with the next one, like, it's nuts. Yeah,
0: no, I, I very much envy his mind, there's no doubt, and I will, before we get into rankings, can I make one more... It was a, a complaint that I had while I was reading, and I want to see if you can nix this or if you can explain this sure. away, because for, for whatever reason, this just really bugged me, and maybe I'm the only one. So a huge point of this novel is obviously the sun. It's obviously Clarice, you know, her relationship with the sun. And I was very much taken aback by the physics of the sun going down behind the barn. And I know yeah. that you're, 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 you're probably hearing this and thinking... This guy, he's just being like it goes, way like too it goes hard down it. in the
1: same place every
0: day, or goes down in the same place every day for seemingly months on end. Like the yeah. fact that it's not, and, and here's the thing: is it's not like the barn is next door. They they go out of their way to describe it as on the horizon. It's a small yeah, it's black like, box. It's like
1: two or three miles away. Yeah, you can't see any
0: features. Like the uh, Josie is has to relay the features of the barn from afar because you can't tell from that distance what it looks like. You just see this small black dot on the horizon and they're like, yeah, that's the barn. And the fact that the sun, every day for, at at minimum, weeks, because they they do say in the story, like, 11 days went by, two weeks went by. So, at minimum, weeks, if not months, go by and the sun is going directly behind the barn every single time. That's not how it would happen. And, yeah, this doesn't break the story, per se, but i felt like with such an intentional story it would have been so easy and to just say okay the barn is not several miles away it's next door
1: here's here's my only thoughts on that it didn't i didn't really think about it at the time i did think about it a little bit uh afterwards the only thing i can really think of is that okay they describe where they live as the prairie which makes me think it's relatively flat but i think it might be kind of a topography situation because when the sun sets like the sun is too large to go behind a barn that is that far away. You know what I mean? Right. Like that was the other a, thing I a, thought. If a, if a barn was legitimately like you know a a centimeter you know, prospectively speaking, the sun is so large that it would dwarf it. You'd see it on both sides of the barn as it set every day. So for the barn to actively block it, it made me think that like, maybe it seems far away to her. And that's, a, that's her uh, displaying her lack of knowledge about, cause she's never been outside. And so maybe her lack of knowledge about distance. Like I remember uh, one year for, for new years, we went to Dallas, downtown Dallas and we took one of our friends who's from Wichita Falls. I, I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And he had never been in a big city before. He'd never been around buildings that were taller than like five stories. And right. we were uh, probably 100 yards away from a skyscraper. And he was like, oh, that's got to be a quarter mile away. And we were like, no, that's like, you know, a block. And he's like, no. Like, and the, because he just didn't have the context for that perspective. Um, mm-hmm. I've also seen it a ton in Vegas where, someone's like, oh, we can walk to that casino. And you're like, you can't. know that's
0: that's several city blocks. Like, that's very far. Exactly.
1: And so it, it made me think that that might be the situation, that, like, her... The distance might seem incredibly far to her because all distances are far to her, like, having only traveled, like, what amounts to across a room for most of her life. But the fact that the sun went behind the barn, like, the barn actively blocked her view of the sun, that would be almost impossible unless it was closer than that. So... You're right. It's either... It's one of these two. Either Clara is unreliable in her description of the distance, or he just didn't really care that much about that being scientifically accurate, and just said, that's what it is. So...
0: Yeah, and and, and it could... Again, it doesn't... It doesn't, like, deconstruct the novel, but it... This is such a big part of the novel, is her relationship with the sun, the sun going down behind the bar, the trek to the barn. That... I feel like it's at least worth pointing out that, hey, this doesn't make sense. And, anyways, so... Just something that I that I noticed. All right, let's go to the ratings. What, what did you give this?
1: Um, I'm going to give this a solid 8.5. Again, I, I just I'm so bad about procrastination. I just finished this last night, so I haven't had it sitting long enough to like really settle in. I don't want to say that it's like one of the ten best novels I've ever read. It is v- incredibly competent, incredibly deep, like you mentioned, a thousand hours of thematic uh, layer here that you can go into and it is definitely a master class in uh, a concise and tight depiction of a relatively simple story that conveys a ton of meaning and so I I give I give the man his due he is you know he he does, he is does not need me to laud him. He has the resume to yeah. show that he is yeah. an incredible he has the incredible skills here. Um, so yeah, I, I would say an eight point five. Um, and for me, like once you get up into the nines, you're talking about like Fitzgerald and yeah, um, Master Clans, you know, yeah. Ann Rand and Ann Rand and mostly everything Ayn Rand ever did. So <laughs> I'm kidding. I uh, detest really yeah,
0: continue. Obviously kidding. Uh I will say you know I'm going to give this a little bit lower rating and I'll explain why. I'm going to give it a 7, which feels dirty. Feels like I'm I'm giving a Nobel laureate a 7. It feels like it feels like he should be graded it feels bad right that i that i'm saying that this, you, looks, you might insane. have rated
1: him higher if he wasn't a nobel laureate it might be that like because he is you know you might be holding him to a higher standard which is fine
0: that that could be it subconsciously um i think that the 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 pov and the technical way that he went about doing that it was very tight tightly written there's obviously a lot of theme to it i i think that where i take off points is there's he doesn't stick the landing with a few of a few parts of the books particularly again as we've we've debated earlier uh i didn't like the beginning of the book you know i i think you qualmed some of my feelings about that but i think the jump forward and what should have been the climax or should have been some like it felt like it didn't really come to a head and again as you, you as you pointed out this is a novel about somebody recanting their memories more so than a a sort of like an action story or anything but i just felt there was real chance for character growth, character change, but really it was just, what's going to happen next? And then it was like, flash forward, everything worked out fine. And I, it did not work well with me. I, I thought there was a lot more meat left on the bone. And ultimately, I I thought this this was a very telling story that made you reflect, but I didn't feel like it was an incredibly entertaining story. I, I didn't feel... That's fair. You know, in, in referring to like, you know, if you're watching a documentary and there's, you're watching... um something like Planet Earth, and you're learning a lot, right? And it's incredibly well done, right? But then you go watch, I forget which streaming service has the better FireFest Documentary that is like crazy entertaining, right? Yeah, and they they both have almost, a
1: significant moral issues with how those were created, but I agree. I've watched both of them like twenty times each. They are fascinating.
0: Agreed on the moral issues of how it's created and FG3 who who do, who do
1: you that. want to have paid Billy mcfarlane or Jerry Media because they both right. they both got the check. Which, oh God, what a it's gross. Match made but in point, hell.
0: Yeah, point being is like those are those are kind of opposite into the spectrum of agreed entertainment value versus speaking to deeper things and you're learning something and all that. And I feel that if I say that this is higher than a seven, it's going to cause people to run out and feel like they have to go read it. And I do feel like over half of people that would read this book would be like, this is not for me. And they would probably not get sure. past like page 70. Um,
1: but so. I do, I will also say that I think that there is a ton of important literature that's like that. Like I'll never forget reading uh friends Kafka's metamorphosis in high school. And to this day, I cannot do it, man. Like, it is, I I understand that it's important. I understand that it's influential. I can even appreciate it when I read it. I cannot bring myself to like, okay, I've got the afternoon off. I'm going to sit by the pool and read this fucking terrifying body horror epic. <laughs> like, that's just yeah. not my thing. And so I do think that this is a novel that like, this is not going to be the Da Vinci Code. Like, n- this is not going to be a pop, phenomenon right like right but i do think that like especially as we enter a future where the issues raised in this book become more prominent it is an important book and that is that's enough i think he would say i think i don't know him it seems like a book written by someone who would say that's enough
0: it's going you know using a different medium with music if somebody told me that their favorite album was and i'm going to use a generic album of, of choices and I should probably think of something a little bit deeper in this. But if they said like, you know, "Dark Side of the Moon" is my favorite album ever, I'd be like, okay, that's a respectable opinion. You know, like there's some artistic element to it. If if somebody was if somebody was like lifting weights or doing deadlifts, and I was like, hey, what, man, what are you listening to? And it was "Money" by Pink Floyd, I would be like, what? Weird. <laughs> like this yeah. is what you're lifting. And so there is an element. It's like right place, right time. Would I read this novel to be entertained? Not necessarily. Some, like there was entertaining moments to it, but sure, I I think there are certain readers that would not be entertained by this novel, and there are certain people that would love it. And if somebody told me that this was their favorite novel of all time, I I it is a respectable opinion. I wouldn't I I wouldn't be like you're a moron. I just I just <laughs> it wasn't necessarily for me per se, but it was it was a it was a well a well done piece.
1: I've I have encountered in researching for this podcast a ton of people that are apparently like. Ishiguro super fans like he has like this very devoted cadre of people that view him as like the best writer in the world currently and again that 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 does make me want to go read his other stuff and I plan to uh this podcast has had me uh expand my my fiction reading a little bit uh after we did Station Eleven I went out and got her latest book which I've greatly enjoyed so yeah I obviously he he is uh at least for some narrow band of humans like the perfect author. And that, that is enough for sure to, in my opinion, to be called an un, you know, unbridled success in the world of, of creativity. If you can, if there are uh, a large group of people who find incredible meaning and uh, take, you know, incredible value from your work, I think that that is the highest compliment you can pay someone who has devoted themselves to the creative art and being a knight. Uh, is also fucking dope as shit. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. Well, Andy, this has been fun. We'll have to do another Ishiguro novel at some point. We'll have to just probably read all of them and then see which one is the one most yeah. we're talking about. Or maybe we fun. just become a George Rockall-Schmidt slash Ishiguro podcast.
1: Dude, get th- eventually have a roundtable. George Rockall-Schmidt, us, and Ishiguro, just like talking about, in- I don't know, Putin. Talking about Avatar The Last Airbender, the film. Oh, yes, 27-part, 27-hour, the, <laughs> <at> spe- <laughs> the the million-subscriber special is a 27-hour yeah. uncut <laughs> dis- dissection live of the Avatar stream, of The Last Airbender like- live stream. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Well,
0: it, as always, Andy, it's been great. If you like what you heard, please like and subscribe and follow us. We greatly appreciate that. As always, this is uh, Sam, Novel Discourse. This is Andy. And we'll hear you next time. Thank you. Peace. Peace.